This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah this week, and uh, we're continuing on the topic of the royals moving to Canada, at least part-time. Yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that there's still a lot of discussion to be had about who might be on the hook for the security costs uh, Prince Harry and his wife Meghan uh, would incur while living on Canadian soil. When asked by Global's Donna Friesen if Canada would pay for their security costs, uh, the Prime Minister... Uh, didn't really answer it. Have a listen. We're not entirely sure what the final decisions will be, where the dispositions are, and those are those are decisions for them. Uh, I think uh, most Canadians are very supportive of of having uh, having you know, royals be here, but uh, how that looks and what kind of costs is involved, there's still lots of discussions to have. Yeah. Same topic, different. Politician Premier John Horgan spoke to the media about his government uh, responding to the issue of security costs. Have a listen. I haven't given a lot of thought to that. Uh, I'm sure that there are people working on that right now, and I may have more to say on that should the, uh, the royals choose to put down roots in British Columbia. I'm sure I could find something for Harry to do, and the film industry is booming in British Columbia, so I'm sure Megan could get on with uh, one of the great, maybe Riverdale, who knows. Putting them to work, that's the answer from Premier John Horgan. Certainly, uh, there would be some security costs incurred. I just got an email uh, from Jim who said, why are we talking about security for Harry and Meghan being paid by the Canadian taxpayer? They want to strike out on their own and become financially independent, so does that not also mean paying for their own security? Well, Jim, I I responded to you that that is a good question and one that I'm asking our next guest, uh, Global BC Chief Political Reporter Keith Baldry, is on the line. Hey, Keith. Hey, Jody. My email inbox absolutely filled Jody at cknw.com yesterday when we started talking about the Royals possibly spending a good chunk of time here in British Columbia, specifically on Vancouver Island. And then it was like, who's paying for that? They need security, though, right? They need security because they're not just your average people going into the workforce. Uh, They're public figures. And I, I still think, despite all the crabbiness people may have about who pays for security, my experience in covering the royals in terms of royal visits, whether it was uh, Princess Diana and Prince Charles back in the 80s or the, or the, the Queen and Prince Philip a couple times, uh, most recently uh, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, we're talking about mob scenes in terms right. of public reaction. There's just almost delirium amongst the public uh, when they come out and, and view these people. So... Uh, and I think Harry and Meghan are, are no different than the, than the others. They're members of the royal family. They're treated differently. They're seen differently. And they have much different security concerns than than almost any other level of celebrity. So it's uh, it's uh, something that's going to have to be borne, I think, undoubtedly by the Canadian taxpayers at it for some time. Is My understanding, and again, we've got no confirmation one way or another over how much time they're going to spend in Canada, but if they're literally spending half the year here, uh, it's going to be an expensive form of security, but it's going to be paid for, I think, um, inevitably by the Canadian taxpayers. But it's, we're not talking about money that's going to be drained from the health budget or right, something. Right, this right. is just security costs. And yeah. you don't talk about security. I mean, uh, we don't. We can't find out how much we spend on security for John Horgan, for example, or Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau's security detail is quite significant, and it's expensive, but that's just the price you pay for, for guarding these people. No question about that. And the palace... 
has been very tight-lipped about how much security costs for the the royal family in general. That's one of the few things that is kept quite mum. I've been uh, going through, obviously, our hot question of the day is about this. Should Canadian taxpayers foot the bill for for Harry and Meghan's security? And and it is going off. I'm getting a lot of emails in, but I'm also finding um, an interesting other side to those who are sort of put out by the idea of covering these security costs. Sandy Garasino on Twitter said, since when does Canada tell a combat veteran, military helicopter pilot and founder of the Invictus Games, supporting wounded veterans, that he and his family are not welcome here? Well, yeah. I mean, there was an interesting editorial in the Globe and Mail today saying that they have no right to settle down in Canada. But I think, uh, I think you know, there's always going to be an anti-monarchist uh, faction in Canada that's been entrenched for some time, but it's by no means the majority. And right. again, I go back to the public reaction to royal visits is just generally positive, positive and overwhelming. So, uh, uh, yeah, they're going to they're going to reside. I think probably most likely right here where I am in Victoria, just north of here in North Sandwich, where they stayed over Christmas. Uh, they seem to enjoy their their time there. And I, again, the, the people in the capital are sort of taking pride. You know, I've talked about this in the past, taking pride and sort of ignoring them, um, yes. and not treating them as if there's some magical pixie dust laden celebrities in their midst. So it's uh, security is just part of. You know, the reality, the reality of, yeah. of uh, someone in this position, and we don't question the, the security costs that are borne by uh, political leaders in this country. And as I say, Justin Trudeau has a significant security detail, and you know John Horgan. I, we know his security detail here at the legislature. He always has two, at least two, RCMP officers with him at all times, and uh, we pay their salaries. So maybe I'm a sentimental fool. Um, I probably am. I'm not a huge royal watcher. I'm not that person who like wakes up in the middle of the night to to to, to watch. Well, I got to say, I did watch the wedding, so I take that back. I don't I don't live and die by the reports in the Daily Mail or what have you. Um, but I was thinking immediately about the, the maybe the upside and the positive piece that could be brought by Harry and Meghan. Um, you know, setting up even temporary house here, the, the impacts they might have on charitable organizations, how they could bring awareness, as, as Diana was so great at. You know, Harry seems to really want to embrace that side and, and sort of, I don't know, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking at the, the level of paparazzi attention that they got in the UK that I'm kind of flattered that they want to come here and hang with those of us, as you said, who might just let them buy a coffee at the local coffee shop without bugging them. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they they were here over Christmas. You know, I'm in the media, all my colleagues, none of us went out there and trailed them and tried to you know, right. goon them and, and get su- surprise snapshots and that type of thing, which would occur if we were in London. Uh, that's not how we roll, basically, here in Canada. So I think uh, they could have the potential to create some significant charitable benefit. I mean, um, Harry is... Uh, Involved in the Invictus Games, of course, that's a big thing for him. But uh, who's to say that they wouldn't become interested in some of the Canadian-based uh, charity, charitable foundations that uh, might need a boost from someone who carries their profile and their cachet? So, I think the positives outweigh the negatives, and that's why John Horgan yesterday was pretty pumped about them coming here. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, potentially setting up shop right, almost right next door to him in uh, out in the outskirts of Victoria. And again, he says he and Justin Trudeau were joking about how they were giddy about the prospect of the Royals coming here, which was sort of a joking reference to that now notorious New York Times article about the frigid wasteland of Canada. Oh and all the Canadians are giddy about the, the prospects of the Royals coming here. I found that article to be just uh, so tone deaf. Written by a Canadian, too, someone from Montreal. Oh, and uh, it was amazing how tone deaf they could, uh, they could get. It was interesting on Twitter how many people were tweeting 
the temperature of the sound they, the towns they were in across Canada, which all were well above freezing, uh, despite the characterization of a barren wasteland and bone-chilling cold. Yeah, the igloos that we all live in. Uh, you often explain things in terms that are very consumable when the topic and the subject matter is very complex, Keith. I, I'm wondering if you may help us sort of Uh, unpack, I guess, uh, what the Premier was talking about at his press conference yesterday with regard to the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline project and how he says the project will proceed even with opposition from the Wet'suwet'en. So what happens now? Well, (laughs) talks will continue between the RCMP and and, uh, representatives of the hereditary chiefs up there from time to time. But yesterday, the RCMP uh, cut off access to one of the roads uh, in the leading to the the uh, one of the work sites for the pipeline, but it's going to take more than just tough talk from the premier to resolve this. Uh, this is a festering mess that's been going on for some time. You've got First Nations along the pipeline route. This is a natural gas pipeline, six point six billion dollars, almost seven hundred kilometers long. Twenty First Nations have signed benefits agreements. Uh, that includes a f- five First Nations that are actually members of the Wet'suwet'en uh, First Nations. But you've got, uh, and those are signed by elected band councils. There is a, one school of thought in First Nations communities that the band councils are creatures of the Indian Act and are creatures of colonialism mm. and therefore are rejected as a, as a legitimate uh, tool or, or body. Contrasting that, you've got hereditary chiefs who are not elected, but represent the community at large. And you've got five hereditary chiefs who are opposed to this pipeline, three of which, uh, who are women, uh, are in support of the pipeline. They claim they've been ostracized because of their support uh, for the pipeline. The Wet'suwet'en admit they are a divided community on this issue, uh, but you've got five hereditary chiefs and their supporters from outside the First Nations community, environmental activists and such, who have gathered there for a couple years now with a protest camp trying to block the construction of the pipeline. The courts have ruled in favor of the pipeline a couple times. Most recently, a Supreme Court judge extended an injunction against the protesters and saying you cannot blockade this pipeline. But uh, And John Horgan yesterday talked pretty tough, saying the rule of law must be obeyed. If a Supreme Court judge makes a ruling, it must be obeyed and it must be upheld. So this is going to come down to potentially a violent confrontation. Uh, it may uh, erupt again in a courtroom at some point, but uh, this is not resolved simply because the Premier took a pretty firm stand yesterday, not a surprising one at all, but it highlights some of the tension that exists within the NDP itself, because on the one hand, it supports the LNG pipeline, uh, and it needs it because it, it connects to the LNG Canada project, which is at the centerpiece of its entire economic strategy, while at the same time it's a firm believer and has enshrined in the law of First Nations rights, including the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which one of the articles says requires First Nations must be given free, prior, and informed consent, must provide free, prior, and informed consent before projects can proceed. We had a discussion with Horgan yesterday. Well, doesn't this mean that there's there's a veto here mm-hmm. uh, by the hereditary chiefs? He rejects that and says, no, that's not how he reads it. He doesn't think they have legal standing here. He thinks UNDRIP can, is not inconsistent with the view that the hereditary chief's position should not be uh, should not be upheld. So it's a, it's a tense situation. It's not going to be resolved uh, anytime soon. We've got a reporter, Sarah McDonald from Global, I think, is heading into the camp 
uh, today. I think she's going to have a report uh, later on on the news hour. But it's uh, it's a pretty tense situation, and it's going to get even more tense, I think, as time goes on, because this is headed for an inevitable showdown. And within that showdown is that conflict that has divided the indigenous indigenous communities as well. It, it has, and it's it's, and we've seen this in in some other projects as well. You know, the Trans Mountain Pipeline has the support of, I think, more than 40 First Nations, but there are a couple, a number of First Nations on the coast that firmly oppose the pipeline. So you've got divisions there. There are 204 First Nations in B.C. They do not all speak in, with one voice. They have diverse interests. They have overlapping claims uh, on on one you know particular part of land. You've got rival organizations. Horgan yesterday cited the support for the pipeline from the assembly, which he says exists from the assembly of First Nations and the First Nations Summit. Um, that uh, and again, that they they view UNDRIP as not possessing a veto. But uh, this is a very complicated situation, and the complexities abound when you get into the inner workings of the politics of First Nations. And that's why this one is is so fascinating on one level, but also troubling on another because it doesn't seem that there's going to be a a sort of a mutually beneficial uh, working out of this uh, of this dispute. It just uh, seems that you've got two opposing sides careening at each other, and there's going to be a collision. And in learning more about UNDRIP, uh, BC enacted a law to enshrine that last fall, but the law doesn't doesn't define consent and and no. doesn't it doesn't give veto power on Indigenous communities. And it, it's interesting that that Premier Horgan said yesterday that the law is forward looking and cannot be applied to existing projects. That's right, it's a, and that's a, it's an interesting take by him. But you know, if you just have to go on social media, look at the statements from the hereditary chiefs and their representatives. They interpret UNDRIP as giving them a veto, and that's the problem with uh, that was you know foreshadowed and foretold about one of the challenges UNDRIP would provide. Mm-hmm. Horgan's response to this is that UNDRIP will actually eventually provide certainty. Uh, and a clearer path to resolution over disputes regarding some resource projects, where in the past, a lot of them just simply get mired in the court system, and you can get some inconsistent court rulings, and nobody really knows what the answer is. So the status quo wasn't working uh, that well anyway, so is it actually going to be worse with UNDRIP? And Horgan and the supporters of that say, no, it's not going to be worse, it's going to be better, but it's going to probably take some time before we get to that point. So... To this point, we've been seeing protesters felling trees on the path toward the pipeline to sort of block it. When you say that that this might escalate and and become violent, you know, we're reading sort of inflammatory headlines about snipers. Well, yeah, so the Guardian had an... British newspaper had an unsubstantiated report um, from an... uh, Basically, from an activist mm-hmm. uh, saying that the RCMP had, sh- you know, shoot to kill orders, and uh, that's inflamed the situation. The RCMP deny that, and that's absolutely ridiculous. But the language they that was used in that report has inflamed, I think, the situation. And you now you've got the RCMP also discovered uh, containers of gasoline uh, covered under under uh, tent awnings, uh, as well as those trees being felled. So. You know, it's it's got all the earmarkings of a very tense, potentially violent situation. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. But uh, the emotions attached to this issue are quite unlike other ones we've seen in, in some other disputes. And uh, hopefully, again, every cooler heads will prevail. But I wouldn't bet the farm on that. I think this is going to get a little ugly. Keith, as always, thank you for uh, giving us the, the layman's term version that's very consumable. I think it's important that we all stay on top of this. As you said, um, it could escalate at any time and affect mm-hmm. our province significantly. 
Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Keith Baldry, it was a pleasure, sir. Take care.